Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Thursday, June 18th, 2020, approximately 11.03 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm here with my co-host, Alain Mandel. What's up, Alain? Good morning, Khadija. Um, good, oh, yeah, good morning. It feels like it's afternoon already. Stanley, uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well today. How are you doing, Khadija? Good. I feel like it's a good day. It's before noon and we are going to get into conversation with Rashida Richardson, who is the director of policy research at the AI Now Institute. Um, as, as the director of policy research, Rashida designs, implements, and coordinates AI Now's research strategy and initiatives on the topics of law, policy, and civil rights. Um, immediately prior to working at AI Now, she was, at the le- she was a legislative counsel at the American Civil Liberties Union of New York, the NYCLU where she led the organization's work on privacy, technology, surveillance, and education issues. And prior to NYCLU, she was a staff attorney at the Center for HIV Law and Policy. And there's so much more to say. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show, Rashida. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be in conversation with you all. Yeah, you're, you know, I'm excited to speak to you, you know, first of all, given the current political moment, and it feels like the accelerated pace at which surveillance and data policy and privacy policy is needed um, is like nothing before. And I think you might be, while we've had a few people on about predictive policing and surveillance technologies, including like Ali Winston, Josh Gannell, um, Andrea Miller, you are our first legal scholar on the show. So I'm really excited to have you. Um, And I... Yes. And I know right right before we started recording, you shared an email with me about a bill that you had written during your time at the ACLU having to do with uh, police oversight of surveillance technologies um, and the not very happy response from Commissioner Shea. Would you like to talk a little bit about that and kind of what are the implications of this potentially being passed right now? Yes. So the bill is called the POST Act, but it's an acronym for Public Oversight of Surveillance Technologies. And it's very similar um, to a lot of other legislation that has passed around the country, which is providing greater transparency about the surveillance technologies that law enforcement develops or acquires. This bill has been sitting um, and we've been in a fight to try to get in this pass for almost four years now, which is kind of sad considering that there's been traction even in places like Missouri and Tennessee. Um, But the bill would require the NYPD to um, give the city council and therefore the public information about surveillance technologies that they acquire and use. It's not a solution bill, so it's not going to stop the use of problematic and racist technologies, but I say it's a first step in that it's helping us diagnose and understand the problem so we can develop more effective um, reform to help curtail the NYPD's use of such harmful technologies. And for you, how do you navigate the tension between, you know, feeling compelled to create these kind of regulatory bodies uh, in the face of uh, often what feels like a lawlessness in the development and implementation of surveillance technologies with the lack of enforcement that often happens? I'm also thinking in light of the Automated Decision Making Task Force, uh, which you had written a paper about. And so what are you thinking about in terms of what are the mechanisms for enforcement of this type of oversight? So a lot of um, these bills, both the POST Act and even the Automated Decision System Task Force, are not, I want to emphasize they're not solution bills because I don't want people to be misconstrued, but 
they're helping us understand because so much of the problem is we're dealing with a huge power asymmetry with the NYPD not only being the largest police force and most well-funded police force in the world, but also one that has so much power through its um, unions and other representative bodies that we don't have politicians, particularly mayors, that are willing to stand up to them. So um, these efforts, I think, are baby steps in the right direction. And they are definitely, and I think the reason why even the Post Act is up for vote today, and we're seeing a lot of moves and traction um, around the need for greater scrutiny around surveillance technologies and what police and other law enforcement bodies is using is because I think people are starting to understand and see the harms of this imbalance and why it's a problem that we don't have checks and balances in place or even accountability for certain parts of government. Um, so I hope this is just the first of many moves of reform in New York City and even nationally. Um, and the hope is not so much to help these technologies tinker at the edges or even water down necessary reforms, but more to help us get a better understanding of the myriad of problems we live in right now so we can move uh, towards more systematic or structural reform that I think is necessary nationally. Well, I appreciate it in in, in the, the paper that you wrote about the, the shadow document and automated decision-making t- systems task force that you mentioned that, you know, more the bios of the people that were on the board took up more space than their actual assessment of the situation, which is so real, thinking about there was people there from Fortune Society representing, you know, people with uh, criminal justice involvement. Um, there was people representing uh, people with child welfare involvement. And in light of these collective global protests demanding justice for George Floyd and Black Lives Matter um, being front and center, do you see any opportunities right now to do that kind of bedrock political education around um, these automated decision-making systems, surveillance apparatus, the, the kind of structural change that is needed? Are there opportunities right now to make that legible to the broader public in partnership um, with the kind of what's happening on the ground. I yeah, I actually sense. think we're in a very crucial moment right now because with a lot of the reforms like defund the police, I think we need to be talking about surveillance technologies because the reality is if we don't have infrastructure in place to do resource allocation to other uh, places in government or even new bodies in government, and we continue to have elected officials that are completely hostile to any form of um, criminal justice or other reform, then my fear is that these efforts to change these problematic systems will just be usurped to then create some large surveillance um, network. So instead of having police, we'll just have CCTV cameras and facial recognition everywhere, which I know... um, sounds like a sci-fi future, but is a practical reality because I think we're living in a society that because of the imbalance and people just understanding how pervasive these technologies are, the harms and risks that they cause and how they work, that we have a lot of elected officials and even people um, in our society that don't see the problems and and would just think, oh, isn't it better to have a data-driven technology like predictive policing rather than cops having discretion to make those decisions and not really seeing the problems with that logic or even how these systems are even more harmful if um, scaled than some of the human decision-making we have now. And I think it's also this misconception that 
technology is somehow just created in some mythical bubble and they're not human creations when in fact they're completely subjective and they're designed by people who have a very specific worldview and then that's being shaped and embedded into our governments. And on that note, I was just looking through the, the, the ABC7 piece that you shared with us on NYPD surveillance transparency bill expected to pass New York City uh, Council, and it's quoting Rodney Harris as a chief of detectives and an undercover detective himself, uh, raising concerns about if undercover use of technology is being shared with the broader public, that it can be co-opted and implemented by criminals. And I'm just wondering, because there's not enough coverage of and not enough transparency by the New York Police Department, what are you seeing as like important ways that this technology is already being implemented, deployed, and developed that maybe people are not already familiar with? Um, I'm going to answer you, but I just want to be clear that he's wrong. <laughs> and and <laughs> that, um, one of my colleagues, Genevieve Freed, actually gave a fantastic testimony to the city council back in December. And she has a computer science background and is, and is like a machine learning person and broke down how it's actually impossible to game these systems because the NYPD keeps saying this, like, you're giving the map of the city to terrorists, you're giving this away and people are going to game the system and then our cops are going to be hurt. And it's like, one, the bill doesn't even require enough information for even the most sophisticated computer scientists to do that. And so I just want to raise her work up so people are aware that it's, that's a fallacy. Um, but to answer the question about what's out there, there's tons of problematic tech. Um, tech. So the one I like going to first because it's the creepiest um, are what's called x-ray vans. And it's essentially... Um, X-ray sort of uh, radio frequencies that are even higher than what's used by TSA when you go to the airport and walk through those scanners. And they're in like a white, mysterious looking van and the NYPD can drive around and the technology is capable of scanning through cars and homes. Um, but also the concern is like, the, it's tons of radiation. So it's also health concerns associated with that. So they're essentially like cancer vans running around um, the city, you have uh, this technology called stingrays, or the more technical term is cell site simulators. And those mimic cell sites to help identify where a phone is. So, um, and this is actually something that there's been concerns about whether the NYPD is using at um, a lot of this recent protest. And essentially, if they have a phone that they can look for, it will just uh, send, send out pings to all phones in the area to help identify it. And one of the concerns is that when these technologies are used or when a stingray is used, it actually disrupts the phones in the vicinity's connections to actual cell sites. So if you're nearby trying to call 911 and this technology is being used, your phone call is not going to go through. Um, and then some more advanced forms of stingrays can also see the content um, on phones, so it can see text messages and other things. So there's a lot of privacy concerns um, along with those technologies. But and then, and then the other piece, which is just one thing for people to notice, is that 
Um, typically, when stingrays are deployed, they um, tend to drain the phone because it's constantly pinging phones in the area. So that's the reason why some people are speculating that the technology is being used at protests, because a lot of people have noticed um, or at least said their phone went from like 80 percent to zero in the span of a couple of minutes. Um other technologies is facial recognition, which I know has gotten a lot of press nationally and globally. Um, and I can keep going, but I'll stop there because those are pretty good three creepy ones. Uh, I have a quick question. So you you mentioned a few very clearly problematic new surveillance technologies that this bill would directly address. But I'm wondering, what are some uh, quote unquote um, unproblematic or non-problematic technology, such as body cams, for example. Um, I'm thinking about how, for George Floyd, for example, in this situation, there were body cams, but often getting that kind of footage is extremely difficult, if not damn near impossible, right? And so I'm wondering what this bill does in terms of allowing the public to access that information faster, or is that a completely different conversation? That's a completely different conversation because access and transparency, so access and transparency are treated differently almost in the law in that this um, bill, the Post Act, is requiring more public transparency about what's being used, but getting access to more details about um, the technologies or even in the case of body cameras, the content is dealing more with uh, the state in what we call FOIL. It's the Freedom of Information Law. It's comparable to the National FOIA Freedom of Information Act. Um, And that is typically the law that's used for any member of the public to get access to information from NYPD or any um, public record or government body. And the NYPD has abused this law a lot. Um, there's, when I was at NYCLU, the New York office of the ACLU, there were several lawsuits where the NYPD were, were raising exemptions. One is called um, the Glomar exemption, and that's something typically used in counterterrorism. <laughs> and they were using that to deny um, access to information about their use of stingrays and other technologies. So... There's tons of other reforms that need to be done with our public disclosure laws. And I also think there needs to be more guidance to agencies about responding to these requests, because I've I've done years of filing these types of requests, and it's an uphill battle. Most of them, it takes years to even get a response. And most of the time, you do end up having to go to court because agencies want to fight over it. And I've even had agencies reply saying they don't even understand what I wrote. <laughs> so it's, I think we have a lot of different reforms to do. But for at least this issue, the Post Act is not going to really help give more access to information, but it does require the NYPD to file annual um, reports about these technologies. So it will provide at least some basic information, but if you're looking for more granular details, then that's um, the freedom of information law. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the process from from kind of these these acts of transparency to, to genuine accountability. I really enjoyed reading the the ADS shadow report. And I think my favorite part was the timeline right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have you have like you have a very strong indictment of like a kind of broken politics in just like a kind of like couple paragraphs and bullet points. It starts out with this incredibly like 
it sounds like from the report, simple bill, like, okay, open source any of these ADS technologies you're using. Then by, by October and November, it, it becomes like, okay, maybe we can actually do that. But like, if you can't do that, give a good reason why. And then we'll also have this, this advisory board. And then by December, it's like, okay, forget all of that. We're, we're just going to have this advisory board. And then like, you basically spend the rest of the report documenting how the advisory board didn't do anything. Yep. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I think you now see at the federal level, there's two bills, one in, one in the, the House, one in the Senate. And I, I am very concerned that you're just going to end up with more like you know, councils discussing things that don't do anything? Yeah, that's actually something that I'm hoping to research over the next year is kind of like really interrogating the efficacy of like task force and commissions. Like generally to be the complete cynic or realist (laughs) I am, um, I often see task force and commissions as a watered down form of reform to help delay necessary action. But in some cases, and particularly with automated decision systems, I don't see it as a bad thing because there's so much that we don't know, including what is being used, that it can help get a better understanding rather than moving so quickly with other watered down or ineffective reforms. Um, so I'm hoping to get a better understanding of like what is the right approach, what has worked, because New York City was the first, but now Vermont had a state AI commission, Alabama has had one, and there's legislation in um, several other places. So I just, I'm going to be examining closely what happened in these other states and what can be learned from these instances. And I think if anything, this shadow report that we all keep referencing is a good example of a way the public and researchers can help give a little accountability or at least shame um, about these efforts and that like, I just took notes, a lot of notes, which is clear from the level of footnotes in that document um, for two years. And it helped give much more clarity because if you look at the city's PR announcements, you would think the task force was a success. Um, and that they actually did what they were supposed to do. And the help and the reason why I wanted the, that report to not only have like practical and empirical recommendations, but was also to clarify the record of like, the city is putting out these statements that they succeeded and did all of this stuff, but here's what actually happened over two and a half years. Um, so I think there is work we can do on the public end to kind of try to hold government accountable. Um, But obviously, that's knowing that there's power imbalances, information imbalances, so it's not always practical um, to do that. But I definitely am still skeptical about the that approach, um, more generally the task force approach, and especially in the criminal justice realm, because I think nationally, statewide, citywide, we've had so many commissions. Um, and still we haven't seen any of the necessary changes. So I hope that is not what's pursued. I have a lot of issues with the bills on the Hill, um, besides the sort of task force and commission approach. Um, but I do think it's on us as the public to also find more inventive ways to hold our elected officials accountable. And then when they don't do a good job, show up and vote. So they understand that they don't have lifetime appointments and can lose that power if they're not actually being responsive to the needs of their constituents. I, I completely agree. I think that um, the, uh, 
the, there is a part in the report where you do kind of document how, how to do community engagement around this subject matter. And I think that is clearly so much more of a success than the, the task force model. I also, not to like gas up Khadija, but like, that's kind of what she's doing with We Be Imagining, right? Is like mm -hmm. a lot of this science communication work that, that I think is incredibly necessary around these topics and, and grounding it in people's lived experiences and not some sci-fi future, but like, no, there's a van outside your house and it's giving you cancer. Um, I think is very important. Um, have you just, have you spoken to council member Vaca at all about, you know, like he kicked off this process and I'm just curious what his impression of it is at the end. I actually haven't talked to him recently, but we were on several panels and talked. So one thing to clarify is he introduced the bill um, and got it passed and then his term was up. So he's no longer a city council member. Um, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have influence. And um, he cared a lot about these issues and I think was very interested and supportive of the, some of the advocacy I was leading since the passage to keep pressure on the process. Um, but I actually bet that you're now reminding me, maybe I need to send him an email to be like, hey, what do you think about the shadow report and the outcome of all of this? Yeah, especially now. Um, on somewhat a different topic, you know, something I've been thinking about is how, you know, the conversation around Breonna Taylor, George Floyd has forced like a, a broader reckoning around racial injustice in certain institutions, thinking about museums. There's a trending hashtag right now that museums are not neutral, like who are the real looters? Um, and then within academic institutions, the hashtag black and ivory with um, all different black people in all different types of uh, positions and within academia talking about not just the interpersonal um, aggressions and violence they face, but intellectually, how um, the refusal to cite um, people of color, things like that. And I'm wondering, Dealing you know, from work. within, what did you say? Dealing work. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a little bit wondering, you know, the everybody has been really loud about like algorithmic injustice and diversity and pushing back against harmful AI. And I'm just wondering how like the current political moment is being integrated into the, to the, all these various institutions developing the party line. And also what kind of reckoning do you think is facing or has not yet confronted the data policy space that you have to navigate in? Yeah, I'm happy America has waken up from its several centuries long sleep on the issues of race. <laughs> right um, but it's also like, I, it feels like the Twilight Zone because it's literally every day there's something like I saw yesterday. Now they're changing um, the name of Aunt Jemima, Sarah, recognizing it was a racial trope. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of like, it's 2020. Like, are these things... <laughs> Uh, it was also four days after The Onion yeah. put out the article yeah. saying they would do it, which is another level of irony. Yeah. The side-by-side so, side is hilarious. Yeah. So it's like, I, I mean, no, I don't want to disparage these efforts at all because they're way overdue. Um, but I also, do, I, what I'm finding, and this is true also in the tech space, and I'll get there in a second, but I'm finding people think you can still do the bare minimum and that's acceptable. And I'm really, and I'm really hoping these uprisings continue. I have been like very critical, probably meaner than I'm typically, I typically am of people just because I'm like, 
people need to understand this is not enough. And I know um, there was a lot of press last week in the tech space, at least, of like Microsoft, Amazon, and IBM making statements about their um, use of facial recognition. And I want to separate them because I think some media has covered them as all taking the same action and they've been very different. IBM said it's no longer going to sell or invest money in researching and developing facial recognition. Amazon said they're going to stop selling its facial recognition systems to law enforcement just for a year. Um, And then Microsoft said they're going to stop selling their facial recognition systems to police. And I think those actions are better than doing nothing, but I also don't think they're good enough because many of these companies are still developing racist and highly problematic technologies, just to name a few, IBM still, IBM and Microsoft develop predictive policing, silent on those technologies. And Amazon um, also produces and is still selling Ring, which is like their doorbell uh, system, which they lobby and work with police departments to get access to. And we're kind of silent on whether Ring is going to be something that they're um, sort of reeling in. And also not to suggest that the focus on police is a problem, but that's not the only problem because even using these technologies in commercial spaces still can implicate the police and still can implicate other coercive actions from government. Um, So I really hope the title of this podcast gets to most of America and we need to have a little bit more imagination about what it means to have an actually racially inclusive and equitable society, because I still feel like most of these efforts from most institutions are still based in this logic of assimilation in a way of like, here, let's throw a few things at you and hope you'll stop complaining um, and go back to business as usual. And the reality is like, we've been sucking it up for centuries and it's time for us to have a shift and actually try to move towards a society that includes and allows every type of person to belong. Um, I'll stop there. I'll get off my soapbox. (laughs) No, I'm on that soapbox with you. I mean, part of it is like, I appreciate that you brought up the solution space and I'm sure, I know that I personally, since the protests have began, have been getting a lot of white guilt emails all up in my inbox and my DMs on every social media platform as a lot of other black professional men and women have been receiving, right? And so I've been thinking about like, how does this translate to access to capital? How can we transform this? Because I, you know, not only do I not want yet another task force around criminal justice, I don't want yet another professional development on uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, And so I'm thinking about like, what does that look like right now? I know that you feel like post, it is an improvement. You know, it's not really seeking to address or remedy the type of surveillance technologies that are being implemented by the NYPD, but at least provide us access to more information through them submitting an annual report. But on kind of a meta level, you know, AI now is, you know, pretty big deal. And from as the executive director, kind of what are your ideal kind of set of demands? And, you know, I always ask people to like resolve racial capitalism all in one episode. So I I don't want it to be like too, (laughs) too all encompassing. Um, but kind of what, where, where do you feel like the trajectory is of meaningful demands? Like what, how should that be articulated? And I mean, we can even like think aloud. It doesn't, we won't hold you to it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've been focusing more on the questions I think we need to start asking in society. Cause I'm even struggling with myself of like, I've been working on reform and chipping away at problems and strategies for subverting the norms, but 
as far as like what to replace that with, that's what my new focus of like, that's where I need to start spending more energy and even invoking my own imagination about what that, what those alternatives should be rather than just trying to shift the norms. And in the policing criminal justice space, it's really like, how should we be dealing with harm in society? Why is it that police are sent to be the social workers, the uh, street blockers, the everything within government? And really, like, I, I want to, it's almost like I want to start having conversations with random white people on the street just to ask key questions because, I, like, one, and this is off topic and I'll get back on topic, but. One weird thing I've noticed, because I kind of live in the middle of where a lot of the protests in Brooklyn are happening, and there was one that was going down my corner one day, and I was just standing and looking at it, and then there were a few white people walking off from the parade, but it was like people couldn't even give eye contact or look at me as a Black person, and I was like, wait, you're in a protest about Black people, but you can't even like look at a Black person? <laughs> and so... I think it's some like deep and disturbing things we need to deal in, with internally as individuals and collectively as a society to even move forward that policy can't really help with. Um, and I've been trying to think through what is that like social policy and even maybe technical hybrid that we need to start working on now to get us there. And if we're, if, and if the whole team as the team being society isn't ready, then like, what is necessary to shift things, knowing that not everyone's on board with the changes that are necessary? Yeah, I hear you. I mean, we've also been waiting 450 years. I don't know if waiting, um, we might be another 450 years waiting for people to get down with Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and I'm not um, suggesting that we, it's okay to wait anymore, but it's more that like, I don't think policy or even it, it, it's like I'm struggling with this a lot because just like technology is the tool the law is the tool and I think throughout American history it's been weaponized against marginalized groups for the majority of time so I also struggle with just looking at legal reform as a means to getting us to a better place so I'm giving you a lot of non-answers, but it's because I'm struggling with this stuff as well, but also struggling with, I've taken a very particular professional path and have a particular skill set and a discipline that I think is high, highly problematic and maybe not the solution for the future. No, I feel you. That's very real. And I feel like part of, you know, so one thing that, you know, you guys know about me is that my kind of research focus is predictive analytics in the child welfare system. And I generally feel like a sense of frustration about why the public is able to, in, in the media's reports on connecting the dots around the prison industrial complex and policing. Um, but there's not that same kind of comprehensive understanding about child welfare as like a re family regulation system. Um, and then it encapsulates so many of these other social issues, thinking about how parents with disabilities are most likely to have their children removed from them. Um, and a lot of black people that have been murdered by the police disproportionately have disabilities, like thinking about Freddie Gray, et cetera. Um, and it's in and with law enforcement. It's like these, these you can't see parts of government as these really independent entities when the reality is like who's going to be enforcing actions by child welfare administrations and and they both sort of have similar coercive power of like disrupting people's lives so like, in total agreement <laughs> 
No, exactly. I'm just thinking more about there feels like there's so much work to make that legible. Mm -hmm. I mean, like in my dream world, like we don't have the same kind of stop and frisk level documentation about initiating administration of children's services or ACS investigations. You know, if there was um, if if ACS investigators or the people who the mandated reporters who initiate the investigation were forced to fill out a card. That said, the race of the child, whether they strip search them, which is typical, um, although right now they can't do it do, remotely because it would be considered child por pornography, ironically. Um, and what was the school, you know, public schools districts are the uh, number one professional cohort that initiates ACS investigations in New York City. You know, I feel like we would have a lot more hard data to understand how does a system actually operate. I mean, for a $2 billion system, most of it is not legible to the public, including um, the increase uh, in them running um, juvenile detention centers due to the race of the age law from Rikers. And yeah. so a lot of it feels like, how do you how do you make these systems legible? But then it's like, where are we going? Because like you said, we can't wait another 400 years. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I also think in addition to trying to make the systems legible to the public, it's also, I think we need to change the narratives because that's kind of, I think, has been helpful with some of the criminal justice reform is like you have stupid shows like cops <laughs> which i still didn't know what it's on until it got canceled recently um which sort of advance a very certain view of the criminal justice system and the role of police and then you have advocacy pushing back and showing this other narrative that the most of us um specifically black people have seen our entire lives and i think there's an even worse problem with the child welfare system in the united states in that most people only see very egregious cases of harm and therefore see these agencies as the protectors of children but not as an agency with coercive power that harms families um so and and i'm thinking of um i saw this uh, Netflix documentary, like the trial of Gabriel Fernandez. And it, and it was troubling to watch, especially because they had a whole episode, like almost um, promoting algorithmic decision-making and like predictive analytics and child welfare. Like they had the people from Allegheny County um, oh. and, yeah, <laughs> and Pennsylvania and all like the tech evangelists. And I'm like, wait, so no, that you're not going to talk about the fact that LA County also used predictive analytics. It failed like it's failed in so many other jurisdictions and they stopped using it. So it, it's, it was disturbing to watch that knowing what I know about predictive analytics and child welfare, but seeing this as like a popular and probably watched by millions of people, um, championing the system or at least showing some of the problems with the system, but then championing this technology that's only going to exacerbate those problems. So it's like we also need more journalists doing better reporting on how these systems are working, but also how the systems are broken so people can understand that like these fallacies that they've adopted about certain government agencies being affected and champions of the community are actually flawed. I wanted to scroll back really quickly to what you said about being in the in the kind of legal profession and and wondering if that's a uh, like a venue or or space to like approach these problems a framework. I I relate to that immensely, right? Like I'm in I'm in tech, and I think as soon as anything happens, every tech bro is like, oh, I can use computers to solve 
you know, insert problem here, racism, COVID, whatever, and then like ends up making things much worse. Uh, right. Like I, I, I both feel that impulse as someone who, who uses technology to build things and like is self-aware and see it, like sees it all around me. And I'm wondering if you see this both like in yourself, among your colleagues, and then how this plays out in terms of is, is this how I, is this how I work in a professional sense or is this how I work in a, in an interpersonal relational kind of political sense? Ooh, that's a tough question because it's also I probably surround myself by too many lawyers that think like me um, and see the problems with the law. But I think I don't know. It's, I think the law is a little different because it's more for mitigation, not for problem solving, um, or, or the, at least like the litigation end of it. Um, but it's been in the point I was saying about how it's been weaponized is I think a lot of people delusionally hold on to these constitutional principles that we have, but don't understand that they've been watered down and manipulated through the law and through tons of terrible cases over time. Um, so sorry, I'm, I'm realizing I'm also not completely answering the question, but I think in some ways what I've been trying to do um, both with my research and also just thinking str strategically about policy advocacy work is making sure, like, I, I love history. I, I am a disciple of it in some ways. And trying to incorporate that because I think so many of um, the problems and misconceptions about social issues is that people, particularly in America, don't even understand the history of this country. Um, and a lot of the systems that we uphold. So trying to problematize people's understandings of reality in some ways, but also our institutions. So that way we're not going in. So if I'm like trying to push for some legislative reform, understanding the history of prior efforts, also the people I'm about to meet with, the history of these bodies. So I'm not going in naive, assuming that like my pie in the sky idea will happen, understanding how it will be chipped away and watered down by opponents and trying to like, um, in the privacy world, we use this term threat model. So trying to think through all of the different sort of changes and pivots that may, I'm trying to anticipate all of that. So that way I can understand what is possible and what um, may occur and where things may go. So I'm never full. And, and that's also probably why I was doing a lot of the disclaimers around the postdoc, because I never want to be disillusioned about even the reforms that I'm pushing for of what they're capable of doing. And I think it's really important to tell people that. So I'm always like, this is what this law is actually saying. This is what it can actually do. And here's the things it's not going to do and the problems with that, just so we're not deluding ourselves into thinking that we're pushing for reforms or going to end up in some better place when the reality is we're only getting like half a step ahead. So I'm wondering, um, uh, I'm having a little trouble uh, framing this question just because I think this conversation is bringing up a lot of personal feelings and past experiences with the police that uh, it's getting a bit difficult. But um, I'm wondering, this is a bit of a personal question, but how you feel um, living in that struggle? Um, and the struggle I'm referring to is you mentioned earlier that it's 
it seems like the way that you are introducing policies and the policies, regardless of having to be um, realistic still, it's moving away from reformist reforms um, or maybe like chipping away at these uh, normative structures and maybe um, I'll say taking a more abolitionist approach to the reforms and policies that you can um, offer up to the table. So I'm wondering... Um, as an artist, personally, I just everything is often an affective experience for me. So I'm wondering, personally, how do you feel living in that struggle? What does it feel like to change the way that you are practicing law? A field that you say um, you constantly struggle with because it seems so limited in terms of your actual um, possible impact based on the system we have at play. Um. So I think I try to. I try to be a realist. So I'm never, I'm constantly checking myself to be <laughs> sure I have a clear grasp on reality in some ways. So I'm never sort of drinking my own Kool-Aid. Um, because otherwise, because it's like, I'm, I think why I'm effective at my job is because I take everything so personally in a certain degree in that like, um, one former colleague de- described me as having the right amount of righteous indignation. And and I do think that's true about everything that I do. And it's because it's like I I'm doing this because I want us to have a better society, not because I want to be like get a um, a quote and impress or um, anything else. It's like I I as a black woman from from Brooklyn and <laughs> living my life experience, mostly like growing up and living and having to learn how to cope with being in predominantly white institutions. I don't, I want to try to create a future where like my family and the future doesn't need to continue to repeat the experience. Like I don't want the intergenerational trauma that like we all have and carry in our bodies to continue as business as usual (laughs) because the majority and dominant parts of society are unwilling to give up a little. Um, and so I, I'm doing this work because I just feel like I don't want to continue to feel or have the experiences I've had throughout my life. And I don't want anyone else to. So if I, through degrees and having access to power through the institutions I'm affiliated with, am able to create even a little modicum of change to help advance that vision, then I see it as like my responsibility and form of accountability to my community to do that and do it with dignity and do it um, for change and not for ego or any of the other things that often motivate people. Yeah, thank you. with that in mind, I know you, you're you uh, talking a lot about being a realist, but what does being a realist look like now, right? These uprisings are really creating a whole uh, paradigm shift in the way that we think about how we do all of our jobs, right? And so I'm wondering what policy openings you're seeing um, in regulating certain spaces, whether it be the tech space, which generally has very little, if any, regulation, um, and even some of the HIV law that you've worked on in the past. What does... Um, that framework look like now. Mm. Um, and so, 
Oh, yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to chime in real quickly because um, I just want to also be mindful of time is that I'm thinking very specifically about how do we operate in the space where, you know, when the, the, the critique of techno solutionism has often been painted as um, techno dystopia and you could barely even make the critique. And now you have Marianne Makaba um, in the, the paper of record, New York Times, spelling out exactly what abolish the police means. And so I'm wondering how do you, you know, what what do you think are the possibilities of legitimately like abolishing police and policing um, and within these, this, the tech data policy space, given kind of all of the constraints that you mentioned before? Um, I think we're, these things are possible, but we also need, okay, so I'm going to take a step back. Part of the way I always viewed my work, and this is like funny because I think my college version of myself would be, hate hate this, um, but it's more nuanced in that like I say I think what I'm trying to achieve is incremental reform that creates the infrastructure and space for abolition and more systemic reform to be possible and stick. Um, and I think we're at a crucial moment where people are fine because I one thing I've always struggled with in a lot of advocacy spaces is I think people don't take abolition seriously because they're kind of like, oh, then what? And not understanding that it's a process. And I think we're at a point where like now people are starting to understand that and also see the deficiencies with our current system in the way that we um, and, and the amount of power that's in government. So I think um, I'm, I'm all for us going in that direction. I just also think we need to create, um, I keep saying infrastructure, but maybe I need a better word, but infrastructure and also maybe push out some of these elected officials who need to retire um, so that necessary changes and shifts can occur. Because what I don't want to happen is for these efforts, like I said earlier, to be subverted to help maintain the status quo in some way. So even with what you were saying, Khadija, of like almost a myopic focus on police and ignoring all the other problems with our child welfare system, with our education system, with housing policies, like all these other things, I want all of these conversations to be in in conversation. So in addition to talking about defunding the police, it's like what um, part of that conversation is figuring out what are alternatives to addressing harm in society? What are our alternatives to um, redistributing power and capital in society? And I, I just hope that we sort of keep up the agitation so that we don't settle or allow powers that be to subvert these efforts. But and, and for the tech piece, um, there is a role of tech for technology. I, I don't really know what it is right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the right uh, idea. I'm with you. Because so much of the problem, like I've been saying this and I'm trying to like now make sure this is a piece in everything I write of like the conversation with technology is always inverted in that we're like talking about tech with no clue for where we're going or no goal or vision. And it's really like, let's have a conversation about what it what we need to make schools more equitable then talk about whether tech has a role in that let's talk about what we need to be a safe society and i use that in air quotes because i kind of hate how that term has been weaponized but 
um, and then figure out whether there is a role for technology there rather than just trying to push some type of tech solution based on one uh, sort of framework for how the world works and what solutions should be and then seeing they fail and then doing revisionist history so we all forget this long history of tech failures. Um, so I did, yeah, hopefully. A, a good recent example was some white dude web scraped Twitter for all of the black in the ivory hashtags. And it was like, look guys, I made a data set so we can figure out what's wrong. And I was like, they're, they're telling you, like, you don't, <laughs> you don't need to do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's weird. I was on, um, there's this big AI tech conference called NeurIPS that I was on this panel It that ended up being super controversial, which I still kind of don't comprehend. Um, but it was on like AI for social good and really just questioning that approach. And people were really indignant there. They're like, so you're telling us we shouldn't try to solve malaria? And then the other panelist was like, if you can't even figure out how to get Palantir people in the room to even talk critically about these issues, then how do you think you're going to solve malaria? Which cracked me up, but is a real question of like, how is it that people are so bought into this vision of tech solutionism, but can't even accomplish like really basic things? Um, so yeah, it's a lot of weird stuff in the tech space. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it feels also like really immature. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how, I mean, we kind of alluded to this in the beginning, but your experience with HIV law, does that help you anticipate kind of any material things that need to be fought for now? Like specifically, I'm just thinking about, you know, disclosure of yeah. these databases and people's COVID status versus HIV status. Like how does that help you kind of frame up some of the next goals? Yeah, so I... I was working on HIV criminalization, which I have to say is one of the hardest policy issues to work on. And I did a lot of work in the South um, specifically. It was national and federal. And it I, I think that doing that being some of the first work I did as a lawyer has really helped shape my view because it's like you're talking to state legislatures about why we need better protections for the parts of society that people like don't care about. And there's still so much stigma to be people with HIV, sex workers um, and poor people. And and we still have all of these really messed up laws on the books that just allow so much um, power. So I think in the way of my way of doing structural analysis, it's always of how can you create a solution that helps the most marginalized groups and it's coming from doing that HIV work in very hostile environments and finding weird allies too of like, um, and leveraging them. And that's one thing that I think I have that's helped me in that I think in the social justice space in New York City, especially, there's a lot of like, oh, I don't want to work with those people. And I'm kind of like, hey, if I have to have a strange bedfellow just to get this one thing done, I'm always like, we may not agree on a lot. But if you're going to lend me your lobbyist to get this thing done that helps people, then I'm willing to like, just focus on that and just know that I'm going to be critiquing you on everything else. And a lot of times that does lead to really weird allyships. But then um, as to how that work also con uh, connects to the current moment, it's been really interesting um, to think about my prior work in HIV criminalization and HIV advocacy generally now with COVID because with the contact tracing and a lot of the privacy concerns around that, it's just been a lot of ignorance and thinking where I'm just like, I've had calls with people in government and other sort of technologists of like them simply not understanding where I'm like, you have to understand the role of stigma in all of this. And that like, 
there is stigma with COVID, even though it is so pervasive and it's global, like people look at you differently <laughs> if you're like, oh, I think I may have to have the antibodies or need to get tested. And the role that stigma plays in making any type of contact tracing or even um, public health models for interventions really hard to implement. Um, so I've been trying to think a lot about what lessons can be learned from that work to help challenge some of these flawed views around tech solutionism and helping um, address the pandemic or even other issues, because it's it's this huge disconnect um, and that's more likely to embed more problems and not actually help address those like harder social things of why why do we still have stigma about so many um, healthcare issues? Why aren't we scrutinizing why we have such a messed up healthcare system <laughs> instead? Um, no, thank you for sharing that. And I also appreciate a little tea spilled there. I was wondering who are some of these strange bedfellows that you feel like is worth was worth it or are now worth allying with in order to get some of these policies accomplished? Well, now I can't, I, I'm not a lobbyist anymore, so I can't do it. But when <laughs> I was at the ACLU, I was a registered lobbyist. Um, and in fact, like, I know I'm very critical of tech companies, but I worked with a lot of them and they were very helpful in getting a lot of privacy stuff done on the state and local level, or at least with helping me understand their point of view. And, or like um, what I was saying earlier about threat modeling of like understanding where they were coming from in support of like, this is a good PR and consumer rights issue, but <laughs> this is where like the buck stops in us being able to support this stuff and me just being like, okay, well, we're gonna walk up to that line and work together and you're gonna give me your resources and money to get this done. Um, and then they also respected that I was like, you know, there's a lot of other policies you're pushing and efforts you have that I think I'm morally, like morally I'm against, but also institutionally we're going to oppose and you just need to understand that. And it's like people in policy understand that you're never going to agree. Policy is compromise. So, um, and I didn't, that's not even to say like tech companies are like some evil uh, group, but that's more of an example of the odd bedfellows. And when I did HIV, I'm now blanking. There was this super um, religious group that ended up help, like that. some group named after like Mary of Magdalene that helped with sex workers. <laughs> and they, they were friends with all of the Republicans in, in some state legislature. And I was like, you know, we probably don't agree on anything, but you're <laughs> willing to go and talk to those Republicans who won't even answer my calls or wouldn't even let me in their office. So you go on and do that. So it's kind of like, you just got to take people where they are and just accept like, you, you may not be a good person in my view, but you're willing to do this work that helps advance this issue for people that I do care about. So I'll hold my tongue for the time we're working together. Nah, I hear you. And that's real. I mean, you say policy is compromised, but I also think about how a lot of the critique and even some of these conferences like AI ethics and society, all these different ones, you know, are being funded by Facebook, by Google DeepMind. And I just wonder how the compromises around the funding of this kind of critique and some of the policy work as well, like impacts the content. Yeah, um, well, that's actually one of the things that's been a point of tension because I've come from the view of no money is clean. Like even if you look at the histories of most foundations, like it's not as if people got their money from not working oh, yeah. code, from not doing <laughs> atrocious things. So it's like, 
it, it is problematic. You have to understand those things and you have to understand the politics, but sort of doing these like weird loyalty tests or like assuming that everyone's pure is just like naive. So it's kind of like, Hey, if you're willing to give money to advance this thing, like, I think it's not as simple. So it's not to say like, you know, Facebook's having um, a tech ethics board or donating money to one black cause and then uh, firing all their black employees is okay. But it's understanding that gray area and trying to like navigate it in some way to advance your own cause. Um, so at this point, I was thinking that we could move towards the our kind of wrap-up ritual of everybody sharing their recommendations, but I did want to give you a chance if you wanted to shout out any of your forthcoming work or some of the research interests that you're, you're having right now um, before we go there. Yeah, I, for this year, I'm doing a lot of research sort of building on um, the advocacy and work from the shadow report about automated decision systems and really taking the lessons learned from the failures in New York City and trying to prescribe some solutions and um, building on that work to say like, this is the way forward, or at least here's the more complicated way of understanding. So we're doing some work on actually defining what automated decision systems should be for legislative and regulatory purposes. I've been doing research on trying to understand which types of government databases um, when you actually look at how they're operationalized should be regulated just like an automated decision system because that's also one of those points of tension that came up during the task force process but also in research of like databases are everywhere and, and <laughs> they're so pervasive in government but many of them are advanced or used in ways that they're not simply just a storage base of data um, and need to be regulated and seen as such. So um, hopefully we'll have some really cool, uh, but easy to read, hopefully academic papers coming mm -hmm. out later this year or next year, um, articulating those issues. Dope. We definitely, maybe you can come back on the show when they, when they come out. Yes. Um, so we would love, you can share any, you can recommend anything. It could be on topic or off, something that you're listening, watching to, something random that's cool that you want to kind of direct our listeners' attention to. Um, so yeah, ahead, so um, watching, I just watched that, uh, I love, so I'm not a big sports person, but I love watching sports documentaries. So I just saw the um, new ESP, ESPN's 30 for 30 on Bruce Lee, which was good um, and highly recommend. And I'm reading um, this book called Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race in the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity, um, which is talking about the sort of new forms of racialization that's happening in our current political moment. And I'm reading that partially for work, but also personally, because I'm finding it really interesting how notions of precarity have been so generalized um, and kind of whitewashed in a race how actual groups and individuals are more precarious than others. So I'm really trying to like grapple with both the sort of common understanding of precarity, power, and race, and how that relates to what we've been talking about, but some of the ignorance and naivete in um, the tech community about like how we can just solve racism with an algorithm. Dope. Elon? Uh, yeah, this is kind of a roundabout story, but I 
am not a homebody. I spend zero time at home, but now it's COVID. I'm spending a lot of time at home. I'm working at home. I don't like it. Besides the point, uh, my home is very hot and I bought an air conditioner for the first time. And this was an exciting experience for me. And it led me to reread Rem Coolhouse's Junk Space, which really kind of talks about like a lot of the kind of architecture of the modern world and how it's connected to escalators and air conditioners and these kind of like big open spaces that are kind of devoid of any any spirit or soul. Um, it's a little bit of a meandering read, but but it's it was just fascinating to read it now with the knowledge that all of these spaces are largely empty. And so he so accurately predicted the modern world really architecturally right up until 2020. And then now like all of those spaces are being reimagined in, in like from an architectural perspective, very differently. Stanley. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'll say two things. One is I'm rereading um, the article by Robin DG Kelly, um, black study, black struggle. Um, and it's just interesting to, to reread something and see, look at your previous notes and see your your growth, just in the way that you're thinking about these things, how other texts have now informed your thinking and have developed uh, where I am at least. Um, but uh, separate from that, I started a book club for um, Angela Davis's Our Prisons Obsolete with a few friends, some dancers, um, one, uh, uh, per one friend who's working at a book club, um, some previous like high school colleagues, an engineer, um, just a, a huge assortment of people, which is really exciting. And so that's something I'm excited to like lead and think through with some folks. Cool. Um, so right now my, my life and my reading life is pretty much taken over by all of my professional life. Um, so I'm teaching this course on oral history methodologies at Cornell that like heavily leans on critical black geographies and theory. Um, so this is the first week, actually, they're not explicitly reading Christina Sharp's In the Wake on Blackness and Being. But I try to do this thing called cluttered curation, where taking a topic and looking at it from many different angles. So I'm reading along with the students. Um, Michael Fowler's Architecture of Sounds, um, and particularly this chapter that's looking at how buildings are designed literally in the shape of an ear, or also thinking about designing buildings and thinking about sonic space, along with Catherine McKittrick's Demonic Grounds, and listening to uh, different interviews from the New York Public Library's um, Community Oral History Project for the New York City Trans Oral History Project. Um, so that's it. This is a lot. I think we should also do an episode on just all the things people recommend. We could have like a book club. Um, yeah, I want to take your class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in all of our spare time, right? That would be so cool. So thank you so much, Rashida, for making the time to come on. Um, this is the We Be Imagining podcast. Please tune in to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, I think. Yeah, I'm always terrible at this part. But please like us, subscribe, write to us. We're at webeimagining at gmail.com. We want to hear from you, comments, feedback, questions to share with our guests. And thank you, Rashida, Stanley, and Elon. Thank you.